Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Sky Bergman is an accomplished, award-winning photographer, and, and Lives Well Lived is her dictatorial debut. Her fine art work is included in permanent collections at the Los Angeles County Museum, Brooklyn, Seattle, Santa Barbara Museum of Art, and the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Her commercial work has appeared on book covers for Random House and other notable publishers. Sky Bergman is a professor emeritus of photography and video at Cal Poly State University in San Luis Obispo, California. She has two short films about intergenerational connections currently on the film festival circuit and is working on a feature-length film that is a celebration of love. Sky was recently named a co-generate innovation fellow, joining an impressive group of 14 other social entrepreneurs with co-generational solutions to today's biggest problems. These 15 inspiring social entrepreneurs bring older and younger people together to address racial inequality, climate change, social isolation, and more. And Carol, I know you're a major fan of Sky's work. Yes, Claire, I am. And Sky, thank you so much for joining us and for joining our sponsorship. I was so honored to see your application. That's wonderful. (laughs) It's the honor is mine. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, I'm so pleased to have this chance to talk to you about your work. Getting into all of these museums with fine art, uh, being a professor, full-time job, making films, getting films on PBS, and getting into the Co-Generative Innovation Fellowship, when do you have time to do anything else? I mean, this is a full life. It's a very full life. I like to say that my life is full rather than busy because I do things that I enjoy doing, and my life is very full, and I'm very lucky. Isn't that wonderful? Let's get started with uh, your work as a professor at uh, Cal Poly. Uh, Tell us more about your classes. What do you teach uh, and uh, what brought you to this class, teaching this? Well, um, I have been at Cal Poly for almost 30 years at this point, and I'm a professor emeritus. I'm just teaching part-time and just teaching basic digital photography, but I've taught everything from lighting to um, advertising photography to video, uh, just about everything, and I I really love it. I I came to Cal Poly just – I I went to graduate school at UC Santa Barbara, and it's just – 90 minutes up the road, and it has been a a wonderful school. I love teaching at a university where I can um, collaborate with other people in the university on different projects, and it's just been a great environment. 
How lucky you are. That's wonderful. Well, tell us how teaching has shaped your approach to filmmaking and photography, because this really gets you down into each detail of filmmaking, right? Absolutely. And I think that when you are a good teacher, you learn how to break every step down for your students. So in in part, every time I'm teaching my students, I'm teaching myself. And we have a motto at the university here. It's learn by doing. And I certainly feel like through the, especially through learning how to be a filmmaker, I was living that motto. And I think one of the things that I'm uh, very open to is asking a lot of questions. So I feel like for me, teaching is really a, a cycle of giving and receiving. And as much as I teach my students, they teach me. So I'm very open to their innovative ideas, their new ways of seeing things. And, and what a great environment for me to be in because my mom says that I picked the perfect profession, that I'm a professional student, and I, I do believe that that's true. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I think this is really important to learn by doing. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some film teachers say make a five-minute film a week. You have to keep doing. Every time you go for a walk or every time you go to your gym, take a film, make a film, learn the art and craft. And so I guess you must keep them busy working out of your class. Oh, absolutely. They have an assignment due every week, even though it's a small one, because I think sometimes when we think of a a big film or a big project, that sometimes it feels overwhelming. So my idea is to break it down into smaller tasks that at, a, at the end you end up something really wonderful. And, and I think that that makes it a lot more manageable for the students and also sets them up for success later on when they graduate. Smaller tasks, great idea. Well, tell us what in, uh, inspired you to make your film Lives Well Lived. Claire and I both were really impressed with this film. <laughs> well, thank you. And, you know, it was quite literally my first film and my first my second foray into filmmaking because my first foray into filmmaking was filming my grandmother in the kitchen Uh, she came out from florida to visit me in california when she was 96 and she was an amazing cook who like all amazing cooks never wrote a recipe down and i realized that i really wanted to capture that that time that we had in the kitchen together from the time i was a kid was so just, you know, I wanted that memory. I wanted to be able to capture it. And so I learned how to do filmmaking, really, so I could do this series uh, about my grandmother cooking called Kachina Nana. And that was kind of what started Lives Well Lived, because then when I went back um, to Florida with her for her 100th birthday, she was still working out at the gym. And let me just say she didn't start working out until she was 80, so it is never too late to start something new, even going to the gym. And... um, I, I thought I, I better film this because nobody's going to believe that at 100 she's still working out at the gym. And uh, I thankfully had a mic on her, and I just said, hey, Grandma, can you give me some words of wisdom? And she said things like be kind and live life to the limits. And I came back from that trip, and I was approaching 50, which I think especially for women is a big number, you know, of that half-century mark. And really looking for positive role models of aging. Here I had my grandmother, who was this amazing role model, and I just was not seeing it anywhere in the media. It was all about what we could do to avoid aging. Um, you know, all the things that I was seeing on, in film were, were all about the negative side of aging. And I thought, I'm going to find other people out there like my grandmother who are living full lives, who can be my role models as they age. 
And so I interviewed 40 people who were 75 and older with a collective life experience of, of 3,000 years, and I created my first film. That, that, was, that was the inspiration for it. 3,000 years of life experience <laughs> behind your film. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and 40 people. Well, when you started editing, you couldn't use all of them. What, how did you cut it down? Well, one of the things that I did was that I had questions. I, it, one of the lovely things about working at a university was that I was able to take people from the social sciences out to lunch and say, I'm thinking of doing this project. What questions should I be asking? Here's the list of questions. What else should I be asking? So I spent about four months really formulating the questions I was going to ask everyone. And a few of those questions are threaded throughout the film that with a montage of all the people that I interviewed. And so even if somebody wasn't highlighted, a lot of them made it into those questions. And uh, because I really wanted to have a diverse group of people that I was highlighting in the longer segments. And so that was kind of how I ended up making the decision as to what ended up in the film and what ended up in the editing room floor. And um, I also did a film credit for everyone that I interviewed, whether they made the final cut or not, and made sure that I gave my family all the footage and all the transcripts for each person I interviewed so that they would have that as, you know, just something that they could have as a legacy for them. What a blessing that would be to someone to have mm-hmm. you come and film them and then their whole family <laughs> has that history. How kind mm-hmm. of you. Mm-hmm. Great. It, it was a great project. <laughs> well, now, see, we just had a class recently uh, talking about trailers and mm-hmm. making a fundraising trailer. And the most important thing that the trailer editor was saying is that you have to know the right questions to ask to get the answers to move your story forward. And you spent four months to create the questions to ask. That's incredible. Well, I think preparation is really key. I mean, if you go in and you don't know what you're doing, then I don't think you're going to get much of anything. It's, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And so I really took the time to look at other films that were out there on aging, to look at what other people were doing, and, and like I said, to really, you know, ask my colleagues, ask, don't be afraid to ask other people for help, you know, and I think that was a big lesson for me to learn was to ask for help because it's going to make your project infinitely better. Well, who was it? You, I didn't quite get. Who was it? Something in uh, social group that in the you social were sciences. So other professors, oh, professors that uh-huh. teach in the social sciences. So a friend of mine who teaches in the psychology of aging, and you know those kind of people who I had access to because they were friends of mine from through the university. And so there were five of us that went out to lunch, and I bought them all lunch and just said, "Here are the questions I have so far. What what else should I be asking? What what are some things that you?" Would ask if you were doing something like this, you know, and um, it was really, um, you know, very, very uh, enlightening to, to hear from their perspective because I'm an artist, I'm not a social scientist, and I don't claim to be, but I think it's really good to get help in, the, in that field, at least for this project, uh, from people that have more knowledge who have been dealing with this for a longer time. That's brilliant. Social sciences, right. So once mm-hmm. you got, uh, you interviewed all these people, uh, then was PBS always your uh, destination? No, I mean, I, to be honest, when I first started doing the interviews, I didn't even know I was going to make a film. I just knew I was driven by a passion to interview people who were living full lives that were 75 and older. And at a certain point, 
um, I realized that it wasn't just collecting the wisdom of these people, but also uh, their life stories of resilience, and that I really had to make a film about their stories in addition to the words of wisdom that they had. And um, never thinking it was going to be on PBS, I just thought I was the luckiest girl alive when I got into the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. That's where we premiered. And um, from there, the trajectory of the film just kind of took a life of its own. I ended up being lucky enough to have a distributor to do a theatrical release. Um, We did a lot of community and educational screenings. My PBS broadcast didn't come until three years after I had um, first premiered at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. So it took a lot of time for that to happen, but I think it was worth it because I built up a really good uh, network of of loyal fans for the film who helped me spread the word when it get when it was out on PBS and it's still airing on PBS. I got it's, this is the third year that it's airing on PBS and I still have new air dates coming in uh, every month. So it's a it's a wonderful wonderful gift that keeps giving. <laughs> Wow, getting first of all, getting into Santa Barbara Festival is probably yeah. one in a hundred. Uh, yeah. Well done. <laughs> that was not easy. No, and I, I knew that when, you know, I think that one of my strategies, I, I, going in as a first-time filmmaker, I didn't have any strategy, um, any, you know, any background on what my strategy should be. I just really did it based on instinct. And something told me that I had a Santa Barbara connection. Uh, some of the people were from Santa Barbara and that I would have an easier time getting into that film festival. I didn't even try for Sundance or any of this. I knew that this wasn't that kind of film. So I really wanted to premiere at Santa Barbara. And I think that having a strategic plan for why you want to have a particular film festival as your, um, you know, your premiere, I think is really important. And I was able to clearly... Um, make my case to the programmers at the Santa Barbara Film Festival, and they ended up, uh, they they programmed it twice, and then they always reserve the last weekend for films that, that do really well, and they program mine the third time. It's sold out every time. And wow. um, so that was great. And, and from that, you know, because that was the first film festival, I was used to, able to leverage that to get into other film festivals and ultimately to meet the person that ended up being my distributor for the theatrical release. Well, tell us about that. Who took that on? So um, that was Shadow Distribution, Ken Eisen, and um, he's also the programmer for the Maine International Film Festival. And a friend of mine here suggested that I reach out to him to get into the fe- just to be a part of the festival. And uh, Ken watched the film and he emailed me back and he said, not only do I want you in the festival, but I would love to distribute your film. And I said, okay, that's good. <laughs> and he just wanted... Um, theatrical rights, which was really all I wanted to give out at that point, because I knew I wanted to do community and educational screenings on my own. And mm-hmm. in fact, what I found, and my I had hired a PR person for the theatrical release. She did a great job. We went on BBC and The Hollywood Reporter, LA Times. And we got a lot of press. And um, she said to me, you do realize that the theatrical release is a big PR campaign for your uh, community and educational screenings, and boy, was she right. I mean, I just, it, it just, a domino effect happened, and people heard about the film and still are hearing about the film, um, even with it being on PBS and bringing it to their communities, to their um, corporations. We do a lot of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings using the film around ageism, and um, so it, it, it's still going strong, but it was really that theatrical release that 
kind of set the stage for things to happen. I would imagine that's so unusual. You can't mm-hmm. find a doc in a film in in a theater anymore. This is marvelous. Well, yeah. it, his name is Ken, and he has Ken shadowed. Mm-hmm. Shadow distribution. He also did the Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill. For anyone oh, that God, follows I remember that. the film, um, yeah, a great, great guy. Really, really liked working with him. And um, we're rated 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which apparently doesn't happen very often. So we no. we just yeah we just kept kept going with the film, and and uh, like I said, still going to this day. Well, this was really smart not to give up any rights except theatrical. Mm-hmm. That's what he wanted. That was perfect mm-hmm. with you. And that mm-hmm. gave you control of your windows so that you could have the educational and community screening go on as long mm-hmm. as you wanted, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm still doing – that was another thing that I carved out of um, my PBS contract because not only am I on PBS, but PBS Distribution picked up the film. So they've got it on Amazon, iTunes, um, Canopy, and uh, they sell the DVDs now. And I also carved out the right to um, do my still do my community and educational screenings because uh, there's a there, you know that's a, a really nice way to get the word out about your film, but also to generate income for your next film. And I think that that's really important. And as filmmakers, many times filmmakers are just so excited that somebody wants to you know program their film that they give away a lot of money and um, you know I I charge for my screenings and I think that people should as artists a lot of times people will say oh you'll get great exposure and that always even as an educator I would say you know exposure doesn't pay the bills so you need to be able to pay for pay for your time I mean it took me a lot of time to create the film and so you need to be able to pay for that and when uh, organizations will say, well, we, we're a nonprofit, we don't have the money. I'll say, that's great. I, I can help you um, by putting a sponsorship logo at the beginning of the film so you can get somebody to underwrite the cost of the screening. So give people an alternative to how they can find the money to um, to pay for a screening. Well, tell me more about that. That's a great idea. Uh, explain that. So, you know, especially during the pandemic, I did a lot of virtual screenings, and I – it's very easy. I render out my film, and I would just say, if you want to have like a 30-second um, thing saying this is sponsored by whatever organization yes. or their logo, um, I have a page on my website that's an example page, so people can see that, and they'll have their the, the the organization's logo is prominent on that page. So when people are looking at the screening, they know it's been sponsored by a particular organization. And that's been a very successful way to get um, to get nonprofits to be able to show the film and still be able to pay me for my time and for the the right to screen the film. So then the nonprofit either puts their name or they uh, get a donor to give them exactly. the money, and they put the mm-hmm. donor's name. Oh, right, and brilliant. I like putting the nonprofit's name and the donor's name because I'm all about promoting nonprofits, especially if they're doing things that I really firmly believe in, you know, and, and, and I do have kind of a sliding scale in terms of the screening fee, but I realize I can't do it for free because I need to make sure that my time is valued. And um, the other thing that I found is when you give things away for free, people don't value you in the same way. You really have to be very careful about that and, and make sure that you're, you're valuing yourself and the time that you put into making the film. 
This is really important. I totally agree with you. There has to be value. And what happens is too many filmmakers spend five, seven years making a documentary Mm -hmm. and they never get paid back for the time and the effort Mm -hmm. they put in it because they're not putting themselves first. And This is what I tell filmmakers. You have to get Mm -hmm. paid. You have to pay your rent. Think me first. Be be really considerate of yourself. Uh, Because there comes a time after five or six years where people just want to finish the film and go on with their lives, and that's not it. That's when you're really getting into the important part. Exactly. I had a a fellow filmmaker, because like I said, I will reach out and ask people for help, and before my film was done, I asked for advice from a lot of people, and this one filmmaker in particular said, as much time, energy, and money as you're spending getting the film done, you think that you're going to spend twice that amount getting the film out there in the world. Like it's really <laughs> important to, you know, you get to the point where the film's done and you're just over it. But the reality is that's when the real heavy lifting begins is getting the word out about the film. And so one of the things that I did early on with the film while we were still doing film festivals was I made it a point to go to conferences on aging and active aging. And um, so I, those, I would do uh, just a snippet maybe of the film and talk about the film. And that generated a lot of community and educational screenings as well because I was, you know, know who your audience is going to be, who's going to be the person or the group, the organizations that are going to want to program your film. And um, so I think those, that was invaluable to spend the time, energy, and money doing that and not being paid for that. But it, in the end, I was paid back many times over. Well, this is really important. For a documentary, this is a wonderful way to go. So you went mm-hmm. to conferences on aging, and mm-hmm. you how, you contacted them and got a, a room to show your film or got on the dais? Uh, well, what, uh, I would, what I would do is actually they had a call for proposals, and I would do a proposal. And, um, and, and then I would show snippets of the film, not the whole film. I would show snippets of the film. And talk about, I have a whole PowerPoint about the behind the scenes of making the film, the things that I learned from the film. You know, there were like three key things that I learned from interviewing 40 people who were 75 plus and, you know, talking about those things. Um, And so I put together proposals that I knew that they would be interested in. Um, But in the end, you know, also the people were interested in the film. and, And I gave them a teaser. So they wanted to see the whole film. They wanted to be able to bring the whole film back to their organization. And I think that knowing, you know, which maybe conferences make sense for your particular film to pitch it in a way by doing, um, you know, a proposal, I was kind of pitching it to that, that organi- those organizations. I think that that's really important to do some research in that. Wonderful. And then uh, you had a price for screening it. You already had mm-hmm. your price structure set up for them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So yeah. So I have a, add- my price structure set up and, you know, it was one fee for screening, another fee if you wanted me to come in person, another fee if you wanted me to do it virtually, because I was doing things virtually before the pandemic where I would, you know, Zoom or Skype in to an audience um, because maybe the, the group didn't have the budget to pay for me to go. And quite honestly, at this point, I really don't want to travel anywhere for the film. It's much easier for me to do a hybrid event or an event where they're live and I Zoom in. And so I do a lot of that still. Brilliant. And you get to, uh, uh, they are showing the film and you just come in to answer questions and talk, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. To do a Q&A at the end, exactly. 
Uh, wonderful. This is so important. This is a new way to create documentaries, go to the conventions. Peter Broderick's been talking about this for years, and mm-hmm. it really works. It is time-consuming, and uh, Frances Causey works with us, too, and she's uh, one has has done very well with her uh, marketed by marketing her films this way. Because mm-hmm. when you have a film where it's pretty easy to identify the market, uh, then you're, it's really very simple when you focus mm-hmm. on finding your audience. It's there for you, right? Absolutely. And I will say that one of the my PBS sponsors was a company that I found, Belmont Village Senior Living, and I found them. They did some community um, screenings with me, and that was all through having gone to a conference and, and one of the key people being at that conference and seeing one of my presentations. Wonderful. See, so it pays off in more ways than one. Yes. Well, um, I'm impressed with uh, – I read that you had 300 screenings of your film. So how did you do that? Yeah, it may be more at this point. I have lost track. I mean, we've had over a thousand air dates on PBS, and I'm not even sure how many screenings we've had. It's probably closer to four or five hundred at this point. Um, it's really again, it's been word of mouth. I mean, I think that is always the best sales pitch. And I know, you know, one of the things even for underwriting and developing um, relation, I think it's all about developing relationships. You know, be respectfully persistent. Uh, I had a, a spreadsheet of everyone that ever emailed me about with any interest about the film, and I would just keep um, emailing them back and, you know, just saying it because some, sometimes it wasn't the right moment, and sometimes it takes a year before they would do a community screening. But it happens, and so sometimes it's just that long, waiting, playing the long game, and like I said, being respectfully persistent. And, um, and also asking people, hey, what – um, like I did a lot, I've done a lot of library screenings, and I'll ask um, those people, can you give me a testimonial about how great it was to screen at your library? And do you have any libraries? Is there a library list that you think I should reach out to people, and can I use your name? And it's always easier to make that introduction when it's not a cold email when you're being introduced by somebody else. And so wherever you can get that introduction, um, find that point where there's some connection, I think that that's really important in growing your network. Yes. It's much better when you go in with the name, always. Mm-hmm. That's one of the secrets of sales. And mm-hmm. But go and tell no. It has got to be your uh, <clears throat> mantra when you're doing this because sometimes people, it's on their mind and they forget about it. One of the mm-hmm. men that I wanted to donate to my film grant, <clears throat> he's a brilliant guy. I had sent him a request. Then I sent him a second and a third. And then I decided, well, to heck with it. I'll just drop it. And then I'm interviewing him a year later, and he says at the interview, oh, by the way, I've had you on my list. I want to talk about your film grant. I thought, oh, my God, (laughs) I gave up too easy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I think, yeah, the strategies that I kind of have are I put people, if it's okay, on my email list. So I I send out maybe one email a month uh, just with updates of what's happening. Um, I also, I'm a big, uh, proponent of LinkedIn. I use that a lot more than any, I mean, I close to the other social medias, but LinkedIn is so much more of a professional place to, and I'm posting 
uh, like three or four posts every week about what I'm doing, especially in the space of not about like, hey, I'm doing this, but more like here's this intergenerational work that I'm doing. Look at these connections that are happening between older adults and students and, and really tugging at people's heartstrings. So it's very important to have a really positive story, not just that you're saying all the wonderful things that you're doing all the time, but what, how is it affecting other people in the world? And then I'm also a, a real advocate of if you email somebody, sometimes it's okay to message them on LinkedIn. And one of the ways that I'll do that is I'll say, I just wanted to make sure that my email didn't end up in your spam folder. And, you know, this is what we, I hope that we can connect and whatever. Sometimes it gives people the out who, like me, I have so many emails that come in, sometimes I don't get to them, and then they get further down the list, and I don't see them, and I forget about them. And if I have somebody that does that to me in LinkedIn, I'm grateful to get, you know, again, that's the respectfully persistent aspect of keeping in touch with somebody, is using more than one platform to um, maybe reach out to them. Brilliant. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, all right, well, let's go back. I really want to focus a little more on PBS because mm-hmm. a, a lot of times filmmakers, that's their dream from the beginning because this is when sure. a lot of people come to us at From the Heart. What is your plan, I say? And they say, mm-hmm. PBS, only PBS. That's it. <laughs> okay. So yeah. um, how, did it, how did you get, did you go to them or they find you or how did it work? I went to them, and um, I um, applied through NIDA, and then I was working with Kristen Fellows, who's a station relations manager, and she said, you know, I think your film should go through PBS Plus. Let me reach out to them. She reached out to them on my behalf, and they saw the film and loved it. And so I ended up shifting over to PBS Plus, and um, through that developed a relationship with PBS Distribution, which now, you know, they know I'm working on two new films where they can't wait for to see the two new films. So, um, you know, once you – I think it's really about developing these relationships. And, again, it takes time. You know, I think that that was the big thing. But um, NIDA is certainly a very good way to go for, for PBS, um, you know, to get your film on PBS. So I think that that's for, for people that don't know. But I would also say um, – it's sort of like filmmakers that all they want to do is get into Sundance. I think that that's not right, the right fit for every film. And many films can do really well doing community and educational screenings. And if your goal is just PBS, you may be missing out on a whole other variety of ways that you can get your film out there in the world. So, you know, I just would, just would caution filmmakers not to be so narrow-minded. I mean, look at I, what a run I had before I even got onto PBS. And I think... Uh, if I had been on PBS first, I'm not sure that I would have had that wonderful run with the film. So, um, you know, just think outside the box a little bit. Yes. Well, thank you. That is excellent advice. Because really, you when you when you went in the pit, it was to drain the swamp before the alligators attacked you. So (laughs) what you want to remember is, where's your audience? You made this for your audience. Mm -hmm. And and so finding them and getting the joy of screening it for your true audience, that's what the really filmmakers love the very most. And and it's up to them to get themselves there. There's nobody that's mm-hmm. going to come along and handhold you through the process. You have to make that part of your distribution platform and your plan, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're going to be your own best advocate for your film. And you can hire as many people as you want, but really, truly, you know 
the passion that went into making the film, the reason that you made the film, and you're the one that can speak the most eloquently about your own work. So, um, you know, I have hired people along the way, and I think that's great to help me move things along, but the reality is that most of the um, big successes that I've had have been because I've been on the phone or the Zoom call somebody because my passion about the work that I do comes through and people want to jump on that bandwagon. And I think that that's a really important thing to remember. Exactly. Put some passion in your pitch mm-hmm. because people yeah. give money to people and they, right. they want to be part of that uh, energy that you're presenting. It's an energy about mm-hmm. learning from our sages, people who've been around a long time and have life lessons to share. Well, um, let me ask you, did you sell underwriting for your PBS film? I did. As I mentioned before, one of the underwriters was Belmont Senior um, Living and Belmont Village Senior Living, and the other was a, an organization called StoryFile, which does really interesting um, work where um, they film somebody and you can ask them questions. It's a holographic image. And you can ask them questions after they're gone, so they're trying to capture that history um, and which I, you know, really aligned with my film. And then the other was um, Quaker Oats. And um, so you just never know. I mean, we um now in the process of trying to get underwriting for my next film um, for PBS, Mochizuki, which is about the Japanese tradition of pairing mochi um, to bring in the new year. And so, you know, I'm in the process of reaching out to a lot of people at this moment for that. And, you know, just looking for who are the right, who's the right fit? And sometimes it's different than what you would think. Like I would never necessarily think that Quaker Oats would have been the perfect fit, but they loved it. And um, so, and sometimes it's a matter of reaching the right person at that company because one person might say no and another person might just be completely jazzed about what you're doing and say yes. So I have found that sometimes you have to reach out to multiple people and um, that has one of my mentors when I was in college that used to say, no is just a starting point and just being successful <laughs> about, you know, pushing a little bit harder sometimes and, and also knowing where to put your energy. So, you know, we only have a finite amount of energy and, you know, putting your energy where it makes the most sense. So I have spent, um, I'm, I'm not doing pitches yet for Mochisuki, but I'm working with two interns and we are researching who are the best organizations Um, what, like, for example, one of the things that we did was look at airlines that fly from the U.S. to Japan because this is a Japanese-American story. So we're looking at that. Who are the marketing people in those organizations? Finding out a little bit of something about the company and what their motto is so that we can use that in our pitch so that they know that we have done our research on our end. So we're not just, like, cold calling and saying, hey, you should donate to our film. We are looking at what is the synergy and why should they be part of this um, project. Exactly. That's a great idea. Um, all right. Well, uh, what took you on this uh, pathway to make the film uh, about the, it's the ceremony they have? That was shocking mm-hmm. to me when I read that uh, it, it is all about ceremony to make this, and it is uh, something that they really enjoy, and it's sweet. I love it. I've been buying that for years at the Whole Foods store. Uh, But I had no idea the history of it and all of the love and uh, kindness that goes into making it. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, you know, I think that uh, in my life I've always followed those threads wherever they lead. When I I hear about something and I think, oh, I, I should follow that. 
And so um, the thread to make the Mochizuki film came um, really from Susie Edo Bauman, who is a star in my Wise World of Film. And um, she's Japanese-American and talked about her time being um, interned or incarcerated during World War II. And, but she also talked about the ceremony, the Mochizuki ceremony that her family was involved in. And she started describing all these generations coming together, which I love. My, my passion is really connecting generations. And so uh, shortly after that, I was right there. Her, her family, the Edo family, um, has a Mochizuki ceremony every year, the week between Christmas and New Year's. And I was there enjoying the ceremony and filming it. And really the next um, four uh, times that they did it, I filmed it. Um, one time I interviewed all the people who were involved in it. Another time I really just filmed the ceremony because it's literally one day and that's it. And you really, um, they do it from early in the morning until about noon and then they have a big potluck lunch. And it's just, it's a wonderful ceremony. But the film is also um, really, it's about this idea of capturing this tradition and the bringing together of generations through food, because, of course, that's what I did with my grandmother. So I was immediately attracted to that, how food can bring us together and um, pass down that knowledge and wisdom. But it's also about the Japanese-American experience and how mochisuki is the thread line and um, how that has, has really um, taken them through some, some tough times and the resilience in the face of adversity that they, they faced especially through World War II and, and afterwards. So it really is a, about the enduring power of family love and, and culture. Definitely. What a great film. And I understand you made a short, and now you're turning mm-hmm. that into a one-hour film, right? Yeah, so right. So I made a, a five-minute um, short that I was just about that Mochizuki ceremony that I filmed at the Edo Farm. And, um, and, and, and like it, but kind of felt like it wasn't really – uh, where I wanted to be. So it, it got into 14 film festivals, including we started at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival because I have a relationship with them now. And, and that was wonderful to see it on the big screen. And then COVID hit. And uh, the other film festivals were all online. And that was fine. But, you know, I just was, was kind of lingering in my mind that I needed to revisit um, the film. And so... Uh, I, I really have taken it in a different direction. So it started with the Edo family um, mochizuki ceremony, but now it's bringing in more historical references and, um, and expanding it. And I think that's kind of a nice way to do things is to start small. And then, like I said, I do that with my students, start small and, and then grow it and make it bigger. And um, so I'm, I'm really excited. It's going to be on PBS in May of 2024 for Asian American Pacific Islander Month, and, and I think it's going to be a really wonderful, touching film. Oh, wonderful. It sounds like it. Well, thank you so much. Um, t- in closing, I can you just uh, give our filmmakers, uh, particularly documentary filmmakers who have not found their audience yet, uh, tell them, uh, encourage them, please, on how to do it. <laughs> Well, one of the things that I did when, when I was looking at um, Lives Will Live is look up other films that are in your genre. So I looked up Age of Champions, which Keith, which Keith, Keith Oshawott did, and he became a good friend of mine, and Age, The Age of Love, and a bunch of other films that were in the same genre to see where were they showing their films, what film festivals were they getting into, who was sponsoring them. And I think that that is a really good place to start, is to look at what's already been done. Don't necessarily reinvent the wheel, 
you know, and then be, don't be afraid to reach out to those filmmakers. I mean, Keith and I became great friends. He actually stayed at my house through Airbnb uh, when he was just releasing the film and I was just starting with um, my film. And I think we developed a great friendship, but I also follow up on those relationships. So build relationships with people that are doing what you want to be doing and maybe are farther down the road because they will help you in the long run. They'll help you uh, avoid pitfalls and maybe tell you the great things to do and tell you who to reach out to. And it's all about networking. I think that's super important. And it also will make you feel a little less alone as you're going through the process. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you do feel so alone. But the point is, Lily Tomlin told us all, we're all alone in this boat together. So yeah. we have to talk to each other and network. Mm-hmm. Well, good Absolutely. luck with this. Uh, so this is a lot of fun. You're, you are going down a trail that you've been on before, so now mm-hmm. you can just be as creative and think outside the box even more so because you know it works, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, can I say one more thing about fundraising and filmmaking? Please. I, I, it's, um, my film, Lives Will Live, was pretty much funded by me renting out house, uh, rooms in my house through Airbnb. Um, I really didn't know how to do fundraising, or how, and I just decided to think outside the box. I had two kids that had moved out of the house. I had room in my house, and I looked around, and I thought, this is how I'm going to fund my film. And everyone that stayed at my house, I would tell them, you're helping to fund this film. So guess what? I had this built-in audience of people that were rooting for me who had stayed at my house, <laughs> who would go to film festivals, who would send me photographs that they were there, and they had brought all their friends. And so I just, you know, not that everyone has the ability to do that, but I think when you're looking at how do you raise money, think outside the box. It doesn't necessarily have to be a grant. It doesn't necessarily have to be a sponsorship of PBS. There are other ways that people can fund your film and also become your advocates for what you're doing. So, you know, just think differently. Thank you. That is brilliant. And I also thank you for the kindness of giving the people that you interviewed all of that footage to share with their families. That is such a a, a great gift. Oh, it was my pleasure. I mean, I felt like it was the least that I could do because here these people were giving me their stories, and um, it, it just it was such a, a gift. And so to be able to give back in some way was just uh, it's it's a wonderful thing. And then you. Uh, there too you're building your audience because that person and all their friends are going to be following you well done absolutely (laughs) okay well thank you so much we definitely want to know we'll come back to you next year and find out how the mochi film works and what creative things you found in doing this new film (laughs) sounds good i'd be delighted (laughs) okay thank you claire and thank you very much sky for all the information Thank you. Thank you, Sky. Mm-hmm. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay. Be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. 
Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>